Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. New Books in Economics, brought to you by EAEPE, the European Association for Evolutionary Political Economy. Welcome to this new episode of New Books in Economics. Today we talk about a new book published in 2015 by Elger, and this book is titled Post-Canadian Economics. I will give now the word to its author and to a colleague of us that is also with us discussing the book today. My name is Andrea Bernardi, and I am from Oxford Brookes University in the in UK. What about you, Mark? Well, I'm, uh, my name is Marc Lavoie, and I'm the author of the book. I used to teach at the University of Ottawa. I was there for more than 35 years. And uh, since uh, 2016, I now have a senior research chair at the University of Sorbonne-Paris-Cité, and uh, indeed, I teach at the University of Paris 13. And we're here also with Danny Lang, again from Paris. Danny? Yes, so I'm Danny Lang. I'm an associate professor in Paris 13. And I'm also a part-time professor in uh, Louvain-la-Neuve in Belgium. Very good. Thanks both of you for being here. Let's start from the title, which is Post-Keynesian Economics, uh, um, New Foundations. So what is Post-Keynesian Economics and why we need new foundations? Well, first, uh, in English, it's Post-Keynesian Economics. (laughs) (laughs) The Italians uh, have the habit of of (laughs) saying it the other other way. Uh, Post-Keynesian Economics is a school of thought which is part of the heterodox uh, schools of thought. There are many, many more. For instance, the institutionalist or, or the Marxist. And uh, basically, this, uh, this school pretends to have a different view from the mainstream uh, Keynesians. They, they have a different uh, methodology. They have uh, different objects of analysis. And uh, they are inspired mostly, of course, by John Maynard Keynes, but also uh, by uh, some of his contemporaries like um, Mikhail Kaleski, uh, and also by uh, people who uh, soon after uh, Keynes left were luminaries at Cambridge University, such as uh, Nicholas Caldor or Joan Robinson. And why new foundations are needed today? New foundations because in 1992, so 22 or 23 years before, I had also written a book on the foundations uh, of post-Kindian economics. And, uh, and I, I thought 20 years later, it would be good to write a completely revamped and extended version uh, of this book that would give, uh, that would show what is the state of the art with respect to this uh, school of thought. By the way, we are here in Budapest uh, at the 29th uh, EAEP conference. EAEP is uh, 
the sponsor of this channel and the book was awarded yesterday night as the best book uh, of the year and the, the, the award is uh, named after Myrdal so this is the best uh, book the Myrdal Prize 2017 uh, tell us something about the structure of the book well this, the structure of the book uh, there's, a, there's a long chapter on methodology uh, why are wh what's the difference between heterodox economics and orthodox economics what's the difference between post-Kindian economics and the other schools of thought Uh, why we should not be convinced by the empirical evidence provided by the mainstream economist. And then there's a, there's a couple of chapters which are devoted more to the economics uh, of the, the consumer behavior, the economics of the firm. Uh, so that's the micro part. And then the rest is essentially devoted to the macroeconomics. So everything about uh, money, employment, growth, Uh, international relations, uh, international finance, and uh, then there's uh, also, of course, about inflation. And at the end, there's a little discussion about uh, ecological economics. Uh, I would like to ask, Danny, I hope not a too difficult question, which is, uh, we know that within uh, heterodox economics, there are several schools and at times conflictual. So how do you position yourself with respect to Marx, work and mm -hmm. this book? Yes, uh, so maybe I must say that myself, I, I am in charge of one of the research area of uh, EEP, which is uh, macroeconomic regulations and institutions where we try to mix the different approaches. But myself, uh, I'm rather a post-Canadian economist, even if some parts of my work are more institutional, uh, but I'm mainly a post-Canadian economist, so... And I got very interested by this book, uh, even for my own lectures, because usually I don't use textbooks. And I, this first time, uh, I'm really happy about that textbook. So the, the, the paradox, uh, is that for undergraduate students, I don't use textbooks because I'm un free and happy about the textbooks, uh, especially the ones in French, but not only. But not only. Uh, with the exception of Snowden and Wayne, I think th this book is not so bad. Um, but this time I found my textbook and I use it for my master students, for my master classes. So I myself, I'm a post-Canadian economics and, uh, and I think this is the most complete book ever on post-Canadian economics. And I don't say that because Mark is my friend. I, I believe it. And it's clear, it's complete. And I, I discovered some things in chapter seven. Um, which is on uh, international macro. I discovered, for example, the thesis of the Bank de France that uh, also called the compensation thesis, which is a kind of uh, international version of the um, of uh, the endogenous money uh, theory. And uh, I discovered other things in that book. It's very complete. It's very... Uh, It's very uh, interesting and very stimulating intellectually. And uh, from my point of view, it should, it's also open-minded to other schools of thought. So it's, it's worth at least taking a look. And when you take a look, you read the book. Well, thank you, Danny. You're very kind. <laughs> no, 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 but I think so. But this is why I you won a, a prize yesterday night. Yeah, but I'm not, I'm not surprised. It's well-deserved. And moreover, I must say that the second version, the one you are talking about, 
uh, you don't have the typos that you had in the first version. <laughs> so I have to be nasty also a bit. <laughs> Uh, okay, I think that for our listeners, probably we cannot go too much into details. Uh, more, well, but probably the, the introductory chapter is uh, more than enough. And this is called Essentials of Heterodox and Post-Keynesian Economics. And there is uh, a lot about the assumptions that uh, characterize an approach or another. I don't know if you want to go through all of them or the most important of them. Well, maybe I'll, I'll go... I'll, I'll just speak about what perhaps is the most important. Uh, it's the issue of realism. Uh, in heterodox economics, uh, realism is very important. I mean, what we wish to describe is the world as it exists, rather than the world, uh, some kind of ideal world that uh, that is completely abstract uh, and uh, And so uh, this is a, a key feature uh, in heterodox economics. You want to be able to tell a story that fits to the facts. Uh, you don't want to describe some uh, hypothetical world that exists only in the minds uh, of our, some of our mainstream colleagues. If I, if I may, uh, when I use, I use a book for my students uh, of the Erasmus Mundus Master uh, degree called Economic Policies in the Age of Globalization. And what is amazing is that I can use it to, to show economic theory with the mathematics. And then at the exam, I can raise questions related to real world politics. For example, one of the questions last year of my exam was, uh, if a country were to get out of the euro, what kind of exchange rate regime would you use? And would you go for Keynes's plan? So, for example, so, so you have both aspects in that book, and uh, that's what I really like in it. Uh, it's related to the real world, but you also have uh, theories that try to fit the real world. Yeah, there's also formalization. Yeah, formalization, yeah. Well, the co-winner of your Mildred Prize 2017 is a book uh, titled Microeconomics of uh, Complex Economies, and in this series we interviewed the authors. And there's a lot of mathematics in this book, and uh, in complexity is uh, described as uh, the discriminant between uh, mainstream and heterodox economics. But in your book, the discriminant is probably something, something else, not, not complexity. How would you define your book in terms of why it's not a mainstream book? Well, it's not a mainstream book because the, the topics... The way the topics are being covered uh, are different. Uh, the, the assumptions are different because we try to, I mean, for just to give an example, we do not assume, uh, in that book that agents are optimizing, that they are trying all the time to maximize their utility or their satisfaction. Uh, we, uh, we do not, uh, assume that they have, uh, almost an infinite amount of information and that they are being able to treat that kind of information. Uh, we, uh, well, in, in, in that approach, uh, we assume that people react to, to disequilibria, to changes, uh, but that they, they react progressively in an adapt adaptative way. And uh, in fact, this is very similar to, to the complexity uh, economics that you were talking about. I mean, the only difference is that 
they assume that they, they are, um, there's an, a large number of agents out there and they try to do uh, computational economics um, with simulations and so on. Uh, some post-Keynesians also do that. They're also part of this uh, kind of economics uh, with agent-based modeling and so on, uh, doing simulations. Uh, the major difference perhaps is that instead of having a, a multiplicity of agents, usually we assume that there's a, a couple of cla classes, uh, say the workers versus the entrepreneurs, perhaps a third class, which would be the rentiers, the people who mostly earn dividend payments and interest payments. Uh, so that, that one could say, well, that is perhaps one different. Who is going to use this textbook for what kind of uh, programs and at what level? And uh, what type of student are you training? I mean, uh, what is going to be the result of using this type of textbook in education of, you know, for, of future economists? Well, the purpose of the book, uh, the target of the book was mainly students who were doing their graduate studies. So master students or PhD students. But it was also designed uh, for, you know, younger scholars who have heard about post-Indian economics, who don't know where to start. And so with the book, uh, they, they are being given the, the main references, what are the main papers, the main articles, the main books that they, that they ought to, to, to look at. Uh, there's a very large reference, uh, references section, bibliography. And uh, so that's the purpose. The purpose is to help people who are interested in post-Keynesian economics but do not know where to start. It's to give them uh, a way to, to, to start uh, reading about it and, and finding what are the major authors. So once again, Mark, you're very Keynesian in the sense that uh, you're modest like a dentist. And uh, because I think I heard many colleagues saying that Uh, your book is not only for students, it's also for colleagues. And uh, I heard many experienced colleagues who say that they discovered uh, something in your book, including well-established professors. Thank you. Very interesting. Uh, congratulations again. So uh, what if uh, this book had inspired uh, people that are now leading uh, I don't know, central banks, international monetary funds, or our governments? What they would have done differently during the crisis, for example, or before the crisis? Well, uh, I, th I think one of the distinctive, distinctive feature between heterodox economic, economics and uh, orthodox economics is that there's the belief among heterodox economists that the capitalist system has to be tamed, that it has to be uh, regulated. And there's also the belief that to some, to, that the system doesn't necessarily drive us towards a high level of employment or full employment and that it doesn't necessarily, it isn't necessarily stable. So uh, you ask me, you know, what would uh, central bankers do with this kind of view? Well, uh, then you, you start with the idea that, uh, for instance, the financial system is probably unstable. Maybe it doesn't show uh, at a moment of time, but through time, it, it's very likely that it will become unstable if it is not well-regulated and tamed. And then, therefore, if you put up regulations, then these regulations 
have to be designed in such a way that you know that there's going to be a problem in the future and not believing that uh, financial markets are fully efficient. Well, let me go to If I may, now it seems that uh, central banks are taking your approach, uh, our approach uh, seriously because many central banks now are trying to build uh, stock flow consistent models that were invented by uh, Wayne Godley and Marc Lavoie and are, that, are, that are explained in the book. For example, here, the Central Bank of uh, Hungary, but also uh, the Bank of England, uh, the Division of Financial Stability, and other central banks want this kind of models. So, uh, and it says they have also become very influential in the French agency for development. So maybe now that the crisis is passed, we'll see some changes from the point of view of central banks, because many central bankers have realized that they couldn't go on with uh, simple models where uh, the, the, the banking sector was non-existent or trivial. Very good. So if I, go, if I may go to one of your sections in the introductory chapter, this is titled Four Paradoxes uh, tied to the financial system. In fact, I found probably five, even five paradoxes. you want to tell us anything about those paradoxes? Uh, yes, well, the first paradox is the, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure I remember them all, but <laughs> the first paradox, uh, essentially is, is the one, uh, that has been underlined by Hyman Minsky. So this is related to what I was just discussing. It's called the paradox of tranquility. It's the idea that the more things look tran tranquil, uh, the more things seem to be going smoothly, uh, the more likely it, it will become unstable. So this is certainly uh, one uh, of the, the paradox. Uh, there's another paradox, which is called the paradox of debt, which is the fact that as people or firms try to deleverage, try to reduce their debt, uh, this may in fact slow down the economy. And at the end of this process, the debt ratio may rise instead of going down. In fact, we also have The public finance equivalents of this, just take the case of Greece, where the Greeks were being ordered to uh, do fiscal austerity, they reduce their government debt and reduce their government deficit. But the consequence of that was to raise the debt to GDP ratio. I mean, this is what has been observed in the case of Greece. And in the case of Portugal, it's the contrary. Now they have stopped these austerity policies, their debt is going down. Right. So, of course, yeah, you can look at it the, the other way. There, there, there are a few other paradoxes. One that is not in the book, but I, that I came across uh, afterwards, is the, the paradox of degrading standards. So, what this means is that when the, the standards for making loans are going down, then more people are getting loans, but many of them not creditworthy. However, the fact that all these people can purchase houses or purchase financial assets is pushing up the prices of these things. And so the bankers have the impression that, well, everything is, is going nicely. Everything is perfect. All these prices are going up. Whereas, in fact, we are just on the verge of all these people defaulting in the near future. 
So that's another paradox. You, you get the impression that everything is going well, but in fact, it, it will not. And that's because all these banks have taken the wrong decisions. When we discuss about paradoxes, how can we explain them? Is it the cognitive bias? Is it similar information? Is it just the wrong regulation? Um, well, we, we just awarded the Nobel Prize to Richard Taylor. I don't know if you want to position our thought about paradoxes into this, for example. Well, the, the, there's, uh, there, there's, there's maybe one paradox that can be associated Uh, with uh, some of these people who are doing behavioral economics. But in general, I would not say it, it is not associated with uh, misguided, necessarily misguided behavior or irrational behavior. It is associated with the macro economy. The fact that what one person, do, if everybody tries to do one thing, you will get uh, you might get an opposite result i mean the best known example of this is the paradox of thrift where for each of us it is a good thing to save more because each of us is likely to become more wealthy but if everybody simultaneously tries to uh, save more then the consequence will be a slowdown in the economy and in at, at the end none of us will be uh, richer. I mean, the, the economy as a whole will, will become poorer. Uh, so it is not related to, to, as I said, it's not related to misguided behavior or irrational behavior. On the contrary, you could say the same thing about the paradox of cost. Yes, uh, the, there's also the paradox of cost, uh, which is that It seems to be a good thing for every firm to reduce the wages of its employees, uh, that they will be making more profit. But if they, all the firms do this simultaneously, and this was pointed out by Mike, Mikhail uh, Kaletsky uh, in the 1930s, if all the firms try to reduce the wages, uh, then at the end, uh, all these people will not be able to consume anymore. So consumption will go down and therefore investment will go down. And at the end, the profits of the firm will be going down as well. So again, it's you know, what seems to be good at the micro level may, is likely to turn out uh, to, to have a quite different result at the macroeconomic level. And maybe there is a paradox of the so-called Nobel Prize in economics ah. because they gave it to a monetarist while well, monetarism basically is dead. Well, yesterday, well, much of what you said is about the interaction between micro-level and micro-level. And yesterday, Wolfram and the other authors of uh, the, the book on, micro, on complexity and microeconomics of complex economies, they told us that somehow... Uh, this divide between micro-analysis and micro-analysis, at least from their point of view, it is uh, um, becoming less important because of the ability to study more the, the, the interaction between the two levels. Well, yes. Uh, in complexity economics, uh, it is claimed that uh, the, 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 uh, you know, when you sum up all these uh, multiple agents, you, you will come up with uh, what they call emerging properties, Well, in post-Kindian economics, basically, we call those macroeconomic paradoxes. Well, I don't know if you mentioned this explicitly in the book, but maybe I'm going to make a controversial and difficult question, which is about the European Union. 
Um, I probably assume we don't have the same opinion on the European Union as an institution and as a, a regulator. Um, we know that Britain is leaving, and we also know that uh, Britain influenced very much the European Union and the construction of the single market and the ideology which, which is behind the single market. How do you expect the European Union to change its uh, regulatory framework and its policies and its ideology, if we want to call it an ideology? when Britain will leave? Well, frankly, I, I don't think there's going to be much of a change uh, at the level of the European Union. It seems to me that it's not only the British that had these neoliberal ideas. There's, there were also a lot of uh, uh, French or German civil servants which ha who had uh, very similar views. So uh, I doubt that much will be changing on that front because of Brexit pretty much share that point of view. And what we have in the European Union is not the traditional, um, the traditional view, uh, the English uh, Anglo-Saxon view of liberalism. It's the old liberal version that we have, so a more German version or at least some version of old liberalism that wants to put rules everywhere. And we can see that in the fiscal compact. So the British leaving uh, will not change anything. Except that maybe the British leader will not go back home after uh, the European summit and say, okay, I won, I won, I won, and I saved money and I, I obtained cuts. The result will be the same. What will be the change of policy suggested by a post Keynesian um, approach like yours? A change in policy at the European level? Well, uh, a lot of post-Keynesians would uh, argue uh, that uh, the Eurozone construction uh, is, is a mistake, um, that uh, the, 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 I mean, it's a little bit like a prison in the sense that uh, you, once you are in the Eurozone, you cannot get out of it. Um, there's no way you can readjust uh, prices or wages, uh, the, the competitive uh, aspects. Um, there's the, the fact that um, governments don't have a sovereign currency anymore. Uh, in other countries, uh, the central bank uh, can always intervene, purchase uh, bonds directly on the primary market if they wish to do so in order to keep interest rates uh, low. I mean, we had this incredible experience in 2010 when interest rates uh, in Spain, uh, for instance, went up to up to 7% long-term interest rates, whereas in the UK, they had a similar current account deficit. They had a similar government deficit and and in the UK interest rates remain around 2%. So why was that? Well, it was because of the existence of this Eurozone and the perception by speculators that if they were attacking uh, the Spaniard uh, government uh, bonds or securities that uh, the, the, the central bank wouldn't be able to do enough or wouldn't want to do uh, what the Bank of England could do in the case of the UK. So that's one, one issue. And then the second issue, which we mentioned briefly uh, before, uh, is, uh, is all those rules 
fiscal rules which are being imposed on uh, the European governments, uh, which uh, stop them from having uh, expansionary fiscal policies, even in times where the you know rates rates of interest are next to zero. And despite that, we are still being told that uh, these governments cannot go forward and try to uh, to expand, have an expansion uh, of the economic activity. So that that's the, that's the drawback of the European Union construction. I would pretty much agree, but I would add something uh, I that I discovered in your book is that when you look at the European payment system called Target 2, there are lots of similarities with the Kansas plan and that we could use Target 2 um, and under its current structure to to force uh, the surplus countries, uh, countries that have a commercial surplus to, to adjust. So we could transform, if there was a political will, Uh, the EU uh, uh, used Target 2 in order to have a, a kind of Kansas plan. That I discovered in your book, and I, um, honestly, it's pretty much convincing. Yes, the, the, there's one thing that works well. It's this clearing and settlement system between the various uh, banks inside uh, the, the, the Eurozone. That, that works very well, and... Uh, As uh, I mean, if, if there is a country that has a deficit, it, it doesn't create a problem uh, through this clearing and settlement system. And uh, the, the, the drawback is that uh, there is nothing apparently that can be done to convince the countries that have large trade surpluses to engage in uh, expansionary activities, expansionary fiscal policy, So that this would help the, the other countries, mostly from the south of Europe, who have uh, a trade deficit. Well, in this conversation about ideas and policies and institutions, uh, where would you put Canada? Because it's very close. Well, it's bordering with the United States. We always uh, mention it as uh, belonging to the Anglo-Saxon cluster of nations. Uh, um, but politically now it's very different to both what is happening in England and, and the United States. So in terms of economics and ideas, where would you collocate Canada? Well, by the way, the Central Bank of, the Bank of England is Canadian. Yes, the, the governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, is a Canadian. Um, you know, maybe Canada is somewhere in between the Anglo-Saxon world and, uh, and the European, continental European world. Um, but for, for seven or eight years, we, we had very similar policies as in Europe. I mean, we, the target was to get a zero deficit. And, uh, except of course, during the 2009, right after the, the Lehman Brothers uh, crisis, where all the countries agreed to go into this expansionary fiscal policy for about 16 months. Um, then now we have a new government, the liberal government. They, they, they campaign saying that they would agree to have a small deficit, you know, about 1% of GDP or half a percent of GDP. 
and uh, and to some extent they got elected through this uh, this promise you know that they would do some expansionary uh, policy whereas strangely enough the the party that was most to the left wing uh, in Canada you're never very far from the center uh, they they were advocating a balanced budget and uh, to some extent they got beaten uh, because of that, because they were the favorite at the beginning of the campaign. Uh, what a post-Canadian approach would say about international trade? We know that, uh, uh, well, Trump is uh, threatening to, inver- to, revert, to reverse the, the globalization, or at least to, to protect the United States from, from uh, completely free um, trades. Britain is willing to, apparently in the propaganda, is willing to open itself to to trades and to benefit from leaving the European Union with respect to trades. We know that Canada has recently signed an agreement with, with the European Union, but at the same time, uh, Canadian investments in Britain are now threatened by Trump because of the levies on Bombardier, for example. So how a post-Canadian approach would see this? Another war of ideas, more or less. Well, uh, Danny usually teaches this part of the book. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, chapter 7 and... Uh, But uh, it, it, it's it's Mark's book, so yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a deli- it's a delicate uh, topic. I mean, basically, w- the point of view of the Postkinsians is that they are very wary of this free trade uh, ideology. Uh, so the, the the argument is that uh, all these theorems that exist in neoclassical economics about all the good things that brings uh, free capital flow and, and free trade uh, that these uh, argue, these positive arguments can be easily reversed. I mean, basically, uh, I, w- I would think that uh, post-Kinsians are in favor of some protectionism. The argument being that a, a country that uh, has some protection will be able to expand its, uh, its economy more than if it has a complete open uh, economy. And therefore, and that's the paradox, despite protectionism, Uh, this makes, uh, th- this has a favorable effect on the overall economy because of these positive effects on aggregate demand. I mean, uh, if, uh, if the United States are able to have more expansion of their economy because of some form of protectionism, then uh, the idea is that this, because they will have a much faster rate of growth, then this will have feedback effects on all the others, all the other economies. And eventually, uh, the, the size of the exports would be bigger, would be larger with protectionism, some form of protectionism, than uh, with having just total free trade. Yeah, yeah, but this was a point already made by uh, Paul Bayrock in his book. Um, but uh, here in... Um, In Marx's book, you find uh, the theory behind it, and you find many arguments uh, showing that maybe free trade is not always the best solution. And if I may refer to a paper that is not in your book, uh, but I think you like it too, it's a paper by Silverstorm called CETA, the, yeah. the, the agreement. 
uh, we were talking about between Canada and Europe, CETA without blinders. Ah. And I think that paper is very interesting. It's a post-Canadian paper and dealing with these kind of issues and showing the, the possible effects of CETA. And they're not so positive. Yeah, the, 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 other, the other feature is that there's the belief, I mean, it, it, there's some link here with Marxist theory. There's a belief that because of free trade, this gives more power to the large corporations which allows them to reduce the share of wages in the economy. And within those post-Keynesian models, if you reduce the share of wages in the, in the world economy, then this reduces either the level of output of the world economy or reduces the rate of growth of the world economy. So this is another reason for which uh, post-Keynesians are wary of, uh, of free trade because it has those negative income distribution effects which then have a negative impact on uh, the growth rate or the level of output. Well, this was a very interesting conversation. Thank you very much for your time. So we have a previous suggestion by Danny on the seat agreement and we have a very big uh, book recommendations. The book title is Post-Keynesian Economics, New Foundations and it has been published in 2000. 15 by Edward Elgar. Thank you very much for being here for your time. Thank you. Thank you.